Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Psychology Today, February of 2022. When pain signals PTSD, recognizing the physical manifestation of PTSD could improve diagnosis. The most well-known symptoms of PTSD and those that make up its official diagnostic criterion tend to be psychological, such as intrusive memories, disassociation, and anxiety. New research, however, argues that often ignored physical symptoms are also of prime importance and should play a larger role in diagnosis and treatment. Writing in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, researchers assessed over 14,000 veterans measuring both PTSD symptoms and somatic symptoms such as headaches, joint pain, and digestive distress. Just 3% of the sample met criteria for probable PTSD. Yet of that group, nearly 60% also met criteria for somatoform disorder experiencing persistent physical symptoms without clear medical cause. Less than 3% of the non-PTSD group reported significant somatic symptoms. While follow-up research is needed, the study strongly suggests that somatic symptoms are a core part of PTSD for most patients, and paying more attention to unexplainable physical complaints could help tackle persistent underdiagnosis. PTSD sufferers, especially veterans, may ignore or downplay psychological symptoms, yet many are willing to seek help for physical ailments, the authors write. Recognizing somatic symptoms as part of PTSD could help individuals secure a diagnosis sooner and with it much-needed treatment. Grant H. Brenner, MD. So when pain signals PTSD, recognizing the physical manifestation of PTSD could improve diagnosis. Of course, PTSD really is post-traumatic. It's an acronym for post-traumatic stress disorder. And with that, it is an adjustment disorder, categorized as an adjustment disorder in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which means that it is triggered or caused by trauma that is external. Something environmentally, culturally has happened, and the individual in the moment that they were in were incapable of making the necessary or needful adjustments and thus are rendered some sort of residual effect that again, even as the article suggests, has dimensions of as much intrusive memories, disassociation, and anxiety. And disassociation is just that, a disconnect between the actual occurrence, the trauma, the event itself, and our registry of that. That could either be looked at then as a person is incapable of emotionally and cognitively processing the trauma, or it is so threatening that in the moment they are rendered incapable of processing in general and or now to ask them to go back and somehow recall that runs the risk that in having the memory or establishing that there is indeed a memory 
that the person is going to somehow or does somehow relive in an imminent, immediate sort of way the actual effects of the trauma emotionally. Short version, as much as trauma represents threat to life, in the moment the traumatic event occurs, the individual is really not sure they're going to survive. And with that then, they go into an emotional reaction of either intense and severe pain, physically and or psychologically. Now, of course, the psychological dimension, as I've already described it, is kind of more obvious, although it really can't be said to be so obvious. Otherwise, the person with post-traumatic stress disorder disassociation, that disconnect of memory from feelings, and then with that, some element of denial of putting all that into some subconscious realm beyond a conscious awareness, it wouldn't work. But on a physical basis, or when it comes to soma, or somatic complaints, physical symptoms, actually feeling pain in physical dimension, it seems that the physical dimension, because it is already something that isn't necessarily so associated or tied to a specific cognitive, psychological sort of registry, memory of an event or trauma, it just is there the person experiences it in some sort of detached, removed way more naturally. Oftentimes, individuals really feel the pain. Certainly, emotional processing is a more common occurrence first. That's how we know. That's the body's basic, the hedonic system of pleasure and pain is the body's basic way of letting us know there is a threat then we don't always go past that. And certainly not every physical pain has a psychological aspect to it. But of those pains that do have psychological dimensions or that are psychogenic or originate more in psychological sort of terms or one psychological or cognitive reaction, the existential sort of dimension of what it means to us, how it affects our identity, who we are. There's a physical threat of harm that could kill you, and then there is the psychological threat. And even so, within that, those two can become disassociated or disconnected. Physical threat does not always register as, oh, it could have killed me. I guess there's some, have to be some sort of acknowledgement or you wouldn't see it. Your body would not understand that I almost died here because of whatever the event was that was traumatizing. But from a psychological standpoint, long after the physical threat remits, one is restored to some sort of situation or circumstance of safety, you can still ruminate continue to think about at some level, mostly subconscious, maybe more so at times consciously, that there was such a close encounter with death that there's really, it's hard to legitimize or come up with a reason why it didn't kill you. That one is still alive. And if you relive that trauma, it's still almost unbelievable that it didn't end up a result in the death of you 
that the person really can't work past it. They get hung up there, uh, so to speak, or stuck there, or fixated there, and they can't ever really work past it to a full cognitive processing of it, to even the realization. The bad news is, yes, it happened, but ultimately, the good news is, it did not result in death. If there's anything that could be the greatest or a great measure of adaptability or the greatest measure of adaptability, it's that it did not end your life. But one can become so preoccupied with the possibility of something historically that has happened, having then the power to end one's life, that they never get past it because at some level it's still in that disassociation or disconnect, that inability to emotionally and cognitively process it, they've never come to a full realization or an acceptance that they are indeed a survivor, that it did not result in their death. It did not result in either physical death, and the only reason that there may still be a struggle in psychological dimensions is because the person still has yet to accept they made it. They've gotten through it. The fear, the emotions, as again they would cause one to become stuck, there's a certain degree of emotional processing, there's a registry of emotions and feelings, as again the hedonic system, hedonism, the pleasure and pain sort of dynamic. They know something is wrong, but the insight is lacking. The awareness, if it comes to some level of conscious awareness, it's quickly again then either denied or with extreme, one enters into a dissociative sort of dimension. Buries it so they do not have to contend with or continue to contend with the possibility this thing really could have killed me. I was that close to dying. The threat is still in that sort of way almost packaged in such a manner the threat is still imminent. It's not real. It's again psychological construction. But it seems real. There's nothing that's been done to negate that as far as counter that as far as reality is concerned because the person can't again work through it sufficient to understand remove the emotional dimension, remove the threat in such a way as to objectively step outside themselves or in stepping outside of themselves in a moment to then objectively kind of evaluate that, they've not been able to accomplish that. And hence, all they're really left with is the physical dimension. And the pain that one feels physically could be directly correlate to some aspect of the trauma. It also could be psychosomatic or psychogenic or somatoform in the sense that it is something that seems to register pain in the most physical or obvious again material as with obvious of physical dimensions but really it has psychogenic or psychological basis origin or basis. So there is really then making it a pain so that it can be in some ways expressed or at least registered 
but not really being able to connect it in the, in the manner that allows one, again, to not only emotionally process, but cognitively process to the full processing of the experience, the trauma, to the ultimate end of not only acceptance of it as a reality, but in acceptance of it as a reality, then at least the validation that one survived it, got past it, worked through it. It wasn't their ultimate demise. It did not result in their death. That is indeed something then that should be celebrated. Again, it's the highest sort of calling or measure of not only survival, but survival as an evidenced adaptability. The old saying, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, certainly would have to have part of its origin in that type of, at least, thinking or model or paradigm. But the physical symptoms continue. They continue to be manifest in that way. There is also the very reality, too, that as one experiences, even if it is subconsciously, even if it is within denial and disassociation, unresolved psychological trauma, threat, this constant basis for not only fear, but as the article referenced it, anxiety, the biochemistry that that represents on a bodily basis how one otherwise registers legitimately a material or physical threat or threat in material physical dimension is through some sort of biochemical release of norepinephrine and adrenaline. The sympathetic nervous system, the idea that norepinephrine and adrenaline prepares one in a fight or flight sort of way to contend with the threat it is part of, again, not only emotional processing, but as that emotion is released somewhere along the way, that's going to become then a registry that allows one to make associations, not only with the feelings, but the events, the circumstances that surround it, have surrounded it in such a manner that they learn from that. To do this puts me at risk, at peril. How much? It could have killed me. Don't do that again. Avoid that situation. Pain in and of itself on a psychological sort of continuum represents then progressive dimensions of avoidance. If it hurts, especially if you don't quite understand it fully, avoid it. But you can't avoid it so much as to not think about it or in some sort of psychodynamic measure or way have a mechanism like disassociation or denial that seems to allow you to avoid it because ultimately you don't learn from it. And as much as you can celebrate the survival, and in that sense, that is well worth the reward, the validation that you've survived is well worth working through it, there's also a much more pragmatic or practical aspect to that, which is in a very immediate learning sort of dimension, 
don't put yourself back in a situation that otherwise would run the risk of rendering you then vulnerable or susceptible to not only the threat, but the very real possibility that the threat could actually, as with become actualized, as with result in an existential crisis of death. It could kill you. We learn in that measure or manner or way. So the body takes in data through emotions and sensation, but if it never processes it, it never then learns the body. The person, he or she, they, are never really able to learn fully and completely. And if all that really comes out of that is to disassociate or denial or to somehow give in to the avoidance, the pain doesn't go away because there's still a need for registry because it is again a psychological pain that takes physical manifestation as was discussed a few moments ago. But also the norepinephrine and adrenaline that continues to be released throughout the body in that kind of state of fight or flight in that survival mode is unfortunately very, very difficult or hard, so to speak, on the body. The body becomes worn out by being in such a state of crisis or emergency on a biochemical level with that degree of frequency, with those elevated levels of norepinephrine and adrenaline. To say it another way, fight or flight should represent a very small measure of one's existence. The other should be a state of relaxation, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, of rest, of eat, of sleep, of relaxation, of restoration that comes from that relaxed state. That should be the predominant. But when it is inverted, then you tax your body in such a way that it begins to compromise the autoimmune function, the immunological system, which then renders one susceptible to legitimately then having failure of some major systems, physical, physiological systems. They can begin to become compromised. If there would be any inherited predisposition to a disease or a disease process, then the weakened autoimmune function immunological system makes one vulnerable to the onset and once a disorder or disease process initiates then it is very difficult to ever really go back to the place it was before onset and most of the energy and attention that otherwise then can be given once identified is always in terms of slowing down or arresting the progression of the disorder and disease more than a complete removal of the ill effects or the symptoms, the dysfunction itself on a physical or organic sort of level at the systemic sort of baseline. And so the person really then is at risk of having not only somatoform or psychosomatic kind of complaints, physical symptoms, 
But the physical symptoms may actually start to represent a disease process that's beginning to unfold in the individual. Some of the more common sort of dimensions of that would be with increased amounts of norepinephrine and an adrenaline in one system. Then the possibility of high blood pressure or hypertension. The excess need of the heart to operate to be able to somehow manage all of the elements or again aspects of hypertension as it affects the cardiovascular function, that begins to also then show potential for, in some ways, a complex of initiating independently then of the psychological, now much more physically based, sort of disease or progressive dimension of disorder. So, in some ways, it can genuinely turn into legitimate physical complaints, problems, disorders, breakdown in the overall systemic functioning of the body and the different body systems. Homeostasis, which is that set point where optimal functioning occurs in terms of all the systems and all the biochemistry, becomes compromised. Restoration on a physical and psychological level is dependent upon sleep. Compromised sleep, as with, again, psychological origin, nonetheless becomes in and of itself a physical problem. Poor digestion, upper and lower GI complaints, even, again, headaches that may be, as with stress-induced, again, hypertension, increased blood pressure, all of that can begin to manifest itself as an independent co-occurring or concurrent condition that really then is as much physiologically based as it is psychologically based. Thus, post-traumatic stress disorder really needs to not only be diagnosed but if it all tends to either come back to psychogenic origin or if it becomes a complex of the psychological and then also physical disorder, then to turn off the norepinephrine and adrenaline, to exit the fight or flight mode, to kind of restore the set point, the homeostatic response, to reinvigorate the autoimmune function, to no longer actually contribute to or amplify or intensify. Otherwise, what now has begun to become or has begun to be more physiologically based sort of complaints. All of that needs to happen. But in order to do that, then not only does the diagnosis have to be made, but there must be some level of insight that's generated, where the individual begins to realize the connection between all of these things. The mind, the body, the emotions, the physiology, the psychology, the emotional operations, the cognitive operations, to be able to rightly work through, to be able to rightly process not only emotionally, 
but to be able to have access to the memory, the trauma itself, to bring it out, to talk about it, to debrief in that sort of way, or at least to work on that enough to be able to neutralize some of the really intense or strong or the very acutely intense or strong emotional sort of dimensions or reactions. Education on relaxation strategies, coping mechanisms, sometimes the use of medications to facilitate the turning off of the sympathetic, the norepinephrine and adrenaline as neurotransmitters by the turning on of the parasympathetic, by increasing serotonin levels, dopamine levels in the system that facilitates then better sleep, more restorative sleep, restful sleep, better digestion. And then also turning off fight or flight in the sense, opening a person up in the sense to a broader range of emotional connections, not only with themselves but other people. Closing off that system or in some ways repressing memories or trying to somehow in some manner work on not feeling certain feelings naturally inclines us to not connect to others. And emotional operations do not always have to focus on trauma or the negative. But they come from the same place. There needs to be at least an openness an ability to express and to operate within emotional dimension because so much of our positive experiences in life. Hedonism, again, is pleasure as much also then as we've discussed heretofore in today's podcast, pain. But you can't access the pleasure for being so restricted or constricted in affect or emotional terms. To get past those things, to not run the risk that somehow opening up will run then the equal risk of those aversive or negative or painful, not only emotions, but memories being expressed. To shut down the fight or flight, there's nothing like pro-social or emotional connections that are supportive that are of positive intent and regard that facilitates the release of the serotonin, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the endorphins, all of those things that otherwise are good for restorative, relaxed sort of functioning. So that the balance as it would be, or at least the proper measure as it would represent the proper balance, would be predominantly then toward the parasympathetic operations and less toward the sympathetic. Psychotherapy and psychological counseling can assist in that. So when as much there is then a discussion of PTSD and pain, but there is a lack of an awareness of trauma, or at least a willingness to discuss that in psychological terms, we presuppose then that the individual could benefit, or at least should be at least offered, the opportunity to begin to try to talk more about the psychological in hopes of facilitating not only the removal of the pain as symptomatic, but really the correction of the problem 
because again, it may go back to more psychological or as with, again, this article, when pain signals PTSD. It may be more tra trauma-based or our, our psychological reaction to trauma. So when pain signals PTSD, recognizing the physical manifestations of PTSD could improve diagnosis by Grant Brenner, MD, I think it is very much so something that needs to be further explored. Research needs to be conducted because it does seem to represent an opportunity to be more complete or more holistic in our approach. Again, you've been listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. I want to thank you, our podcast listeners, for being with me today on the podcast. And uh, in that same spirit of trying to uh, offer insight, information, something that is relevant and current that might help or facilitate one's happiness in life or achieving higher levels of not only adaptive functioning but connections and relationships with self and others is why we do the podcast and enjoy bringing that material to you. So we'd like to invite you to join us again on our next podcast and once again, thank you for joining us again today.